0: Thanks, Nathan. Good morning, church. Hey, you've heard this expression um, one man's trash, another man's treasure. One man's trash, another man's treasure. Uh, The saying is uh, proven over and over again in our love for thrift stores, Facebook Marketplace, and Saturday morning yard sales. As a principle, uh, that little proverb means we don't all value the same things. It means that uh, one person uh, says, throw it out, and another says, I'll take that. And uh, it's always fun when uh, those two people are married to each other. But that very human characteristic about what is valuable comes into play in today's passage. We're going to read in Acts 14. As we see Paul, he performs this miracle uh, that is instantly misinterpreted by those who witnessed it, revealing uh, really their own heart and what they really valued, what they cherished uh, most in life. And Paul called them out for it and modeled for us something so much better, pointing us, in fact, to the gospel. And the challenge for you and me as we hear this account uh, today um, will be to re-evaluate what we what we really value in life. And are you firmly set upon uh, the things of eternity which have uh, infinite value, or are you consumed by the temporal and fleeting things of this world? That's, that's the dual question we're going to be asking as we look at the passage. For those who are in Christ, the answer should be, it should be easy. The answer should be easy for those who are in Christ. But as we know, uh, nothing about the Christian life is easy, is it? Well, some of you think it is. Nothing about the Christian life is easy, is it? Yeah. Nothing nothing at all. And so let's um, turn our attention to Acts 14. This is verses uh, 8 through 18. I uh, heard a great message last week from Pastor Patrice on the first seven verses in Acts 14. We're going to pick it up at verse 8 uh, now. You follow along uh, in the Scriptures as I read. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting uh, who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "'Stand upright on your feet,' and he sprang up and began walking." When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. All right, here's what we're going to see in this passage. When When I turn from what is worthless in life to what is truly of value, dot, 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 it's a statement we're going to be building here in the message. So we'll cut it off there for now and and look at the passage to see that Paul and Barnabas have moved on to this town called Lystra. And there was this man we saw taking in the messages uh, who could not use his feet, had been that way since birth, had never been able uh, to walk. And verse 9 says he listened. And the indication in the grammar is that he had been listening over a period of time. In other words, we're not just seeing like a uh, a one-hour excerpt from Paul and Barnabas's life. They had been in Lystra for a little while and had been teaching the gospel up to this point, and the man had been there listening to the messages. And, and, on, and, and, and Paul, looking at him intently on this particular occasion, Paul looking intently at him and seeing, notice this in, the, in verse 9, seeing that he had faith to be made well. You can see that in a person. You can see if they have faith to be made well, if they have faith inside of them. Now, I want to let you in on a little something because the vast majority of people in this room are not pastors, uh, but I've been a pastor for a little while. We have a couple other pastors around here this morning, and I just need to tell you something. I want to let you in behind the veil just a little bit to hear what it's like to be a preacher and a pastor. Are you ready for this? A little secret, a little pastoral secret. It's not hard for preachers to tell the difference between someone who's eager for the things of Christ and someone who's not. This didn't take like a ton of Holy Spirit discernment on the apostles' part to see that this man was eager for the things of Christ. And like I'm up here, you're all just looking at me, but I'm up here looking at all of you, and I can tell when people are eager for the things of Christ. And I can tell when you're checking Facebook. I know. And you think you're hiding it from me. Just looking at the scriptures. just I've, I've got the Bible app open. It's not hard to tell. So Paul said in a loud voice to this guy who he sees is eager for the things of Christ, He said in a loud voice, and what happens next is is the Spirit prompting Paul supernaturally to say what he said. This is not Paul, what we see next is not Paul operating of his own accord. It's not Paul even operating on what we might call apostolic authority. This didn't happen every time he preached. It didn't happen in every town that they went to. But what happens next is unique in the moment it's not something Paul could have turned on and off. It's not something he decided to do. But the Spirit in the moment prompts him to say, to this, to this man who had never walked, he prompts him to say, stand upright on your feet. And we see an obvious miracle happen here, and the the crowd, the, the account of the crowd of these people who don't know Jesus, the account of this crowd is that a miracle happened because we see their reaction. Immediately, the text says that the man sprang up and began walking. Now, why is it, perhaps, that we don't see the same kind of thing happening today? That's always the question when we come to the miracle passages. And I want to lay down a little bit of an understanding of what we see happening here for us. And, and, and let me start by saying this, it all, it's always, 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 see if you can agree with this, it's always God's prerogative to work as He wishes at any point in history. Can we agree on that? It's always God's prerogative to work in this way at any point in history. I'm not the preacher Who's going to stand up here? And there are preachers who would say this. I'm not the preacher who's going to stand up here and categorically tell you that God doesn't do miracles today. That would be foolish. In fact, let me say uh, three things about uh, those pastors who would tell you that miracles don't happen today. A, foolish. I just said that. B, unsupported by Scripture. You 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 can only contrive such an understanding from Scripture. And third, it makes an assumption about God. And if it, and if it isn't an assumption, I'm just going to say this. It's actually an affront to who God is, to say to God that you would be so bold, that any preacher would be so bold, to get right up in God's grill and say, you know what, God, you're not doing miracles today. Does anybody really want to do that with God? to tell him how he's conducting himself in this world, it's safer to say this. God can do miracles whenever he chooses to do miracles. Amen? Everybody okay with that? Should we pause and let anybody leave right now who's uncomfortable with that? And and by the way, when I say that, when I say that, that God can do miracles anytime He chooses to do miracles, it's likely not going to happen at a convention center when you advertise miracle working. <laughs> Should I pause again to see if anybody wants to walk out? <clears throat> now, having said that, what we observe in history is that there have been periods of time when God moved in more obvious and widespread miraculous ways. That's undeniable. For example, during the time of the Exodus, God was working several miracles uh, in, in close succession to each other to bring his people out of Egypt. Certain Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Elisha had the ability to do miracles, and they did these miracles. During the time of the ministry of Jesus, obviously Jesus did many miracles. And in the early apostolic years here in the book of Acts, we see miracles happening like the one we just read about. But there have been other periods, long periods of history, where we do not see this, where there are no miracles happening, where God seems to be, and here's the phrase, where God seems to be intentionally unengaged in displays of the supernatural. We could talk about the 400 years that the Israelites spent in Egypt. We could talk about the exile, the period of time that they spent in Babylon. Babylon. We could talk about the silent years, the 400 silent years uh, before Jesus was born, where not only were there no miracles happening, there were no prophets speaking for 400 years. And we can talk about the latter part of the apostolic age, where as we move through the book of Acts, we see less and less of the miracle miracles happening and more and more a preaching of God's word. Now, all of this, as this relates to what is of value and the account of what we see here in Acts 14 is is we tend to look to the wrong thing as being the thing that's valuable. Now, what are we valuing here? In this passage and in this account, what's the thing that's of most value? Is Is it that one lame man was restored to walking, that he was healed, and that no doubt, from this moment on, he lived a better life than he had been living prior. Is that the thing that we value in this story? Or was it that hope came to a despairing soul? Was it, was it a life transformed? Was it sins forgiven? Was it an, an eternal destiny changed? You see, before we can answer the question of value, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' caution concerning this human need we have for signs and wonders. It's more spectacular. We're drawn to it, we want to see it happen. But I was reading just this week in John's Gospel, chapter 4, and right at the end of the chapter, there's a man, a dad, who comes up and his son is ill. And he asked Jesus to heal his son. Come and heal my son. And before Jesus does anything else, he says, not just to the man, but to the crowds who are watching, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Because he knew we have a tendency to value the wrong thing, he meant it as a criticism of our values the miracle we see with our eyes, the thing that we think is, is, is of, of infinite value to us in the moment is not at all what Jesus called the pearl of great price. That's a reference, of course, to a short parable that he told in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, He's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Are you, are you amassing that kind of wealth? The pearl of great price. Would you be willing to sell everything that you have to give it up to have that Or are you just looking for all the things in this life that you can see, that you can touch, that you can taste and and possess? Well, the man who was healed, he wasn't the one with the problem. Verse 11 says, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices and saying in Lyconian, which was their local language, and Paul and Barnabas would have been speaking to them in Greek, which was the lingua franca. It was the main language of that area. But the crowds now are saying in their local dialect, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, a little bit of a high school flashback coming for some of you. It's not going to be a good memory, but I'm just going to take you back there because now we've got to go into the realm of Greek mythology and all those Greek gods, you had to memorize who they were. Remember this? Remember this? Am I triggering some of you right now? You had to memorize the list of Greek gods and what they did, who they were, and that's exactly what happens here because these people were actually worshiping Greek gods. They saw Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes. And, and the whole thing now, the whole thing is kind of spiraling out of control so quickly. And in verse 13, I mean, I don't know, people are texting, they're posting on socials. But the word spreads super fast, and the priest of the temple of Zeus, he comes, and he's bringing oxen with him. And he's bringing garlands, and they're going to have a feast and a festival and sacrifice this oxen to Zeus and Hermes who have come and visited them. Now, by the way, because of the language change here, Paul and Barnabas speaking in Greek, the common language, everybody understood it, they switched to Lycaonium. It's not entirely clear in the text if Paul and Barnabas know in this moment exactly what's happening because they can't understand this language. What is clear to us as readers is that these folks in Lystra so valued the miracle that they fixated on that rather than on the message that Paul and Barnabas had been delivering in their city, the message that was, in fact, the pearl of great price, the gospel. And again, the question for you and me is, are we any better do we value the kingdom of heaven above all things? Do we value the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to save us, but to transform our lives? Do we value the, 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 the spiritual life more than anything else? More, more than healing physically, physically. More than, more than physical well-being. More than any temporal gains that we could achieve. More than anything we can see with our eyes. And this has huge implications when we go all in on what is of infinite value. What is of eternal value. And one of the implications is, is that it humbles me. We see this next. It keeps me humble when I value the thing that has eternal value, mainly because I, I see God as the giver of every good thing in my life, and I, and I see how he's of infinite value to me and I see the good things that he gives me, including the forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life. And everything else in my life, I, my sins have been forgiven. I have eternal life in front of me. And so everything else of value in my life comes underneath that. And is of lesser value. Even the things that are most precious to me. My wife, my children, my grandchildren. My own health. My friends. Everything. Life itself. Physical life itself. All takes a back seat to the infinite value of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That humbles me. It ought to humble all of us. I mean, this crowd, this crowd is in a frenzy, thinking that Zeus and Hermes have visited them despite all the things that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching to them about Jesus Christ and his gospel. And at some point, I don't know, someone translates for them, or they're putting two to two, two and two together when they see the ox. I don't know. But at some point the apostles realized what was happening and that they were now being worshipped as gods. Verse 14, and when they heard of it, when when they came to this realization, they tore their garments. You see this in the Bible sometimes, and it's in it's in history that people will rend their garments, a, a symbolic and very public act expressing desperation and grief. So they're tearing at their clothes. They're rushing into the crowd. They're going to say some things. They kind of thought at the moment, you know, maybe, maybe if we stood up on this pedestal and just tried to get their attention, then they're thinking, no, 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 that's not going to work. They already think we're gods. We got to rush into the crowd and be right with them when we tell them that we're human beings just like them. They wanted there to be no mistake what they would be saying about themselves. And they cried out, verse 15, this is a paraphrase, but what the heck are you doing? <laughs> we are men like you. We're not gods. And they didn't want to take any glory from God. They didn't want there to be even a moment's hesitation in confronting the crowd about this error. They remained humble before the Lord because they knew everything that He had done for them. And it takes that kind of humility even to be a Christian. You, th- you think about what it takes to, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It, it takes humility to be a Christian because the, the first acknowledgement that must be made if you're to become a Christian is that you're a sinner. You have to admit that, that you've been separated from God as a result of your sin. You, you, have to, you have to push back the world's lies that human beings are essentially good. They're not. It takes humility to admit that, that we're sinners. But then you must confess that not only are you a sinner, but you can't atone for your own sins. You can't get to God on your own. It takes humility to admit that. And then you must turn in faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that, and he's your only hope. And it takes humility to admit that. And so all the things that we might place our value or we might value, things like good works. I'm basically a good person. I do good things. Our morality, our generosity, our, our religious practices, our, our, our philosophies of life, as good as they may seem, or, or just the idea that, that we have some intrinsic goodness in us, a, in a, some intrinsic worth as human beings. None of this is of any value in terms of reconciling with God. And instead, must, we must value above all else this gospel, this truth, this good news about Jesus Christ. I don't have it on the screen, but 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you and it takes humility to be a christian now here's here's the we've looked at the first part of this but here's the truth statement that we're building in this message when i turn from what's worthless in life to what's truly of value it humbles me and then notice this next it compels me to share this truth i want to share it with others I want to, I have to receive it first for myself and then what I have, I want other people to have as well. So after insisting that they were not these pagan gods, they're in the midst of the crowd, they've torn their clothes, Paul says in the latter part of verse 15 here, and we bring you good news. Not only are we not gods and we are human just like you, We're here to bring a message. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, we'll come back to that, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, in this particular message, at least as we have it in Acts 14, there's a lack of gospel detail right here, but we can presume that the particulars have been shared previously. What Paul addresses here is an understanding of who God is, which was the the nature of God became the argument of the moment. That was the concern in that particular moment, and he delivers this short but very effective defense of the living God, and he tells us four things about the living God in this section. He says, first of all, the living God is one God. This is a, a defense of monotheism. There's only one God. There's no pantheon of gods. They have just exalted the two of them as two of their pantheon of Greek gods. And he's saying, No, there's only one. Secondly, creator of all. Everything that has been made has been made by God. Thirdly, patient, that, that the living God is patient and merciful. And aren't you glad? I'm glad. I need that every day. And fourth, that he is sovereign over all. He he controls everything. Everything functions according to the providence of God in this world. And as the living God described in this way, he stands in contrast to these vain things. And, And he's talking specifically about them saying that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes, these vain things that they worship. The word vain, one of the lexicons describes it this way vain is persons or things that are of no use, idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. I wish that were clearer. It's pretty clear. The word, the word vain, in fact, so there's a, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation of it called the Septuagint. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word vain is used a dozen times to refer to the pagan worship of other small g gods in Old Testament times. And so that's they're useless. These, these other gods, all these other God, Zeus, Hermes, and every other God, every distortion of the true God, is empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. And for us, it means anything. Anything that we would put in the place of God. If this were were a different message, we'd be talking about idolatry, making an idol out of anything in our life. anything that would take us far from God or away from God, any distraction that keeps us from God. So things like things like um, I can put myself in that place where I value myself more than God, I think I know better than God, or I could talk about, again, as I already referred to, I could talk about marriage, I could talk about kids, I could talk about friends or work, or the pursuit of wealth, or leisure. And by the way, those are all good things. Like Those are things that God gives us as gifts and, and i have already referred to God as the giver. And the challenge is that God gives us good gifts, but when we put the gifts in place of the giver, we have a problem. We have a worship problem. and That's what we're talking about here. But there can be other things that get in the way too. Gambling, alcohol, drugs, porn, any of these addictions, any of a number of other addictions that can get in the way. So this is really a battle for truth. And that's what Paul and Barnabas running into the crowd are trying to deliver truth to people who had believed a the lie. They needed the crowd to acknowledge that they'd bought into a lie and that Jesus Christ alone is, as John fourteen six says, Jesus Christ alone, in his own words, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there's no missing what Paul and Barnabas are doing here, that there's a call, a very direct, a very, I'm even going to use the word confrontational, a very confrontational call for them to turn from their gods. Turn, you have to change, Paul's telling him, you got to change your value system. The word turn here, another lexicon says, is to this not just to turning, but it's to change one's belief with a focus upon that to which one turns. So I'm turning, in other words, I'm turning from my false belief that has been exposed to a right belief that has been revealed to me. So Paul's saying to them, you need to turn away from this Zeus-Hermes nonsense, and you need to turn to Jesus Christ and his gospel, the one true and living God. Whole, categorically sets out an objective, and a universal truth about God. And 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 what I'm what I'm reading here about Lister, of course, like I'm 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 hearing that it's Lister. I know it's two thousand years ago, but I'm thinking this is the story of Canada in the twenty first century because we're on this parallel track with this city in Asia Minor from 2,000 years ago. We're, we, are, we live in a pagan society that is going after other gods, a multitude of false gods. And the only rule in this is that you can't say that someone else's god is false, whatever that god happens to be. And you can't say that your God is the only one, and everyone should believe it. Now, by the way, I'm a firm believer in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in our country, and I think it's a wonderful document that preserves, among other things, the freedom of religion. It preserves the freedom that we have to meet in this place today and proclaim this gospel. And so that also means that I'm a charter guy. If I'm a Charter of Rights and Freedoms guy, that means that... um, I'm good with the fact that there's a mosque on the north end of town and that Muslims can gather in freedom to worship their God. And I'm okay with Hindus getting together to do the same. And for Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and any other false religion, I'm, I'm fine with them meeting because preserving their right in a pluralistic society preserves my right in this pluralistic society. And we're not, we're not trying to turn Canada into a Christian country by saying the things that we're saying. Freedom for everyone to worship as they please. But from our perspective, what we're saying is, you're entitled to be wrong. But let me tell you about Jesus. You're entitled to value whatever you value, but let me tell you about the gospel that can set you free. We want that freedom, so we offer that freedom to others as well. And our mission is to be just as bold as Paul and Barnabas are being here, to tell people they're wrong and that what they have valued is misplaced and what they need to do above everything else is turn to Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes his brief message here with this comment in verse 16. He says, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways with the implication That it wasn't that way anymore, that things had changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now we look back in the Old Testament, we've said it several times in this series already, that God always intended for the Gentile nations to be welcomed into his kingdom by faith. Prior to the advent of the Messiah or Jesus, he left those nations. In essence, he left those nations to do as they please. You look. Into ancient history. You look at the the empires of Babylon and Assyria, the Greek Empire and the Egyptian Empire, and he allowed them to have their gods and to be in their nations and to worship in the way that they did. But his special attention was given to the nation of Israel. And they were not permitted, to use Paul's words here, they were not permitted, Israel was not permitted to walk in their own ways. In fact, that's the entire theme of the book of Judges. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes, and God would send a judgment on them, and they would... Uh, they would uh, need some kind of rescue and a judge would come both rescuing them physically as a nation but proclaiming the word of God to them and they would repent and there'd be a period of restoration and then they would start doing what was right in their own eyes again and God would send judgment again and he'd send another judge to save them and they would repent and around and around we go. Just read the book of Judges as this cycle that happens over and over again because God wasn't leaving them to do things their own way. To walk in their own ways. But every other nation was allowed to. But with the coming of Jesus and his commission to the church, be my witnesses to the end of the earth, basically that was God putting the nations of the earth on notice. My apostles, my missionaries are coming And your idolatry is going to be challenged. And your paganism is going to get called out. And the gospel is going to be presented in every language to every people group in every part of the world. And every one of them will be told that they should turn from these vain things to a living God, to the living God. Now, Paul adds another caveat to this. Because even in those days, God left them on their own to do their own thing, but they were still responsible to God. Verse 17, God's allowing them to walk in their own ways, but God did not leave himself without a witness to them, for he did good by giving you reins from the heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, God, even to pagan nations, God was pouring good things out on their lives. They were experiencing all the abundance of the creation. This speaks to what is called general or natural revelation. The good things of this earth that God gives to everyone. You know, this, the gospel, Jesus said, the rain, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. We often think of that as being, oh, hard things happen to, to everybody, but it's not a hard thing. Rains are awesome. God got to understand that the rain, the rain in, the, in the Old Testament, in a, in a parched, semi-arid climate, rain is, is life. So when, when those scriptures say the rain falls on the just and the unjust, it's saying that good things happen, good things happen, rain happens, life happens to, to unsaved people and save people. That's general or natural revelation, God just pouring good things out on everyone. And that's in contrast to special revelation, which Jesus Christ would be the special revelation of God. The Word of God is the special revelation of God. But we have all kinds of natural revelation all around us. And Paul says here that that is sufficient for someone to know there is a God and to seek Him. In other words, the creation points to the Creator for anyone who wants to see Him. And as scientific researchers look deeply into the natural world, they should be seeing the work of a designer but they are predisposed by what they value to see only explanations that fit their naturalistic paradigm. And I read this little quote from Louis Pasteur, who was uh, both a um, renowned scientist and also a um, passionate follower of Christ and theologian who said, a bit of science distances you from God, but a lot of science brings you nearer to him. So, Paul deals with this at length, by the way, um, and if you're, if you're jotting down notes, just write down Romans 1, 18 to 23, and he deals with this very topic in some depth where he says in Romans 1, 20, that, the indiv- invis- that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. If you look at the creation, you'll see God and he makes the point that those who don't want to see him, he uses this phrase in Romans 1.18, that they suppress the truth. And thus, Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. And we are compelled to share this message with those who desperately need to hear it. Even, and here's the last point here, even as many remain ignorant to it, to it. Even though they rushed into the crowd, even though they tore their garments, even though they said what they'd said, denying being Zeus and Hermes, they didn't convince anyone. No one turned. No one converted to Christ. The best that they could do, verse 18 says, is they they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They, They just barely convinced them to not kill the oxen. They stopped the ceremony, and that's as far as they got. The sermon didn't hit the mark because they had bought into their own narrative. They had a story that they were telling themselves about all of this, and they weren't willing to give that up. That story, that narrative was what they valued the most. So they couldn't hear, and they couldn't receive what Paul and Barnabas had been preaching. And this ignorance and resistance would eventually be manipulated by others who were much more malicious toward Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 19, we'll see next week, that brings the whole thing to open hostility and a dangerous situation. And that is the issue we face. As we think about this, as we think about, well, how can I go and tell people about this? We realize that the people we want to go and tell are are blissfully ignorant because they have created their own story and they value that story more than anything else. People have their own narrative that they've created to make sense of the world. Our elders are studying right now um, a book called uh, Visual Theology. It's, it's not a heavy theology book, but it's done creatively with visuals and content there that's helpful for understanding And it's just a nice little quick reminder of these theological truths that we have. And and in this book, what we looked at this past Tuesday, we we, we read that human history is a story. Human history is a drama, as the author put it. This is what what postmoderns call, and I I like this phrase, and I like this little bit from postmodernism, but it's what postmoderns call the meta narrative. It's the big story explains who we are and why we're here and where we're going. Well, the author, Tim Challies, he, he, he goes through this, this, under, this explanation of this drama that we're in. He says, if there's a story, there's a storyteller. If there's a story, there's a hero. If there's a story, there's a plot. And then he says this, if there's a story, it is driving toward a conclusion If history is unfolding in a deliberate and controlled way, you can be certain that what happens in the world is not just a series of isolated, disconnected, arbitrary events. Instead, there's a purpose moving forward toward a conclusion. And this story never runs off script. It continues deliberately and perfectly toward its satisfying closing scene. That's the truth we have to tell people. That's what the pagan worshipers all around you, the idol worshipers, those who believe in anything else other than Jesus Christ, that's what they need to hear. And that's what we must tell them. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of being rejected, even in the face of their ignorance, We continue to tell the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, who came to us, and gave His life on the cross, and was resurrected to new life, defeating sin and death, and offering hope to all who come to Him by faith. We have to break through the ignorance to tell them what is truly of value. So the statement is this, when I turn from what is worthless in life to what is truly of value, it humbles me and compels me to share this truth, even as many remain ignorant to it. Amen? Amen. Well, listen, we're going to go into a time of um, celebrating the Lord's table, remembering his death until he comes. And I'm going to pray in a moment, and then Pastor Nathan is going to come up here. The worship team is going to uh, join me up here and lead us through some worship as we do this. And I'm going to ask you to remain seated, obviously, in a moment. The team's going to start singing, but the servers are going to come into the aisles and begin uh, serving uh, the bread and the cup to us. If you're newer to harvest, please understand that in the trays, there are two cups that are stacked together. Take both of those cups out. The bottom one contains the bread, and the top one... Uh, the juice. You take both of those and then hold on to that until we're ready to uh, take the table together. And Nathan will lead us through uh, that time. And anyone here who is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you've given your life to Christ and had your sins forgiven, you're welcome to take the table with us here uh, this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll go into this time of remembrance. Father, I uh, am so grateful that you have given to us the pearl of great price you have given us your gospel you have given us your very own son i thank you for what jesus has done for us and i do pray god that in this moment of worship of remembrance of thanksgiving for all that jesus has done for us that that you'd manifest your presence here with us as you would, Father, draw us closer to you as we take these elements and we remember the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Thank you for the all that we have as believers as a result of Christ's sacrifice. And bless and sanctify this time as we share it together. I pray now in Christ's name, amen.